A couple years ago, one of my colleagues at Civil Beat came across a news story from Northern California that raised the eyebrows of everyone in our Honolulu newsroom. The Quaylar family was having a wonderful holiday season until Thursday night when Stephanie Quaylar Arthur heard her son, his wife, and their three children were involved in a deadly crash. The story was about a battle for custody of three orphan children whose parents had been killed in a car crash a few days before Christmas. The couple's three daughters survived, but one was critically injured in the crash. Although the court has made a ruling the children should be turned over to their grandparents, that has not taken place yet. Despite this, At first, the girls lived with their mother's family, but then their father's family stepped forward. And this is where it gets complicated. Their father was a member of the Shingle Springs Band of Miwok Indians and his family was claiming custody under a law known as the Indian Child Welfare Act, which gives Native American tribes the final say in custody cases involving Native American kids. The tribe would eventually win the custody case, but that's not what got our attention. The mother's family had argued that the Indian Child Welfare Act didn't count because the girls had taken a DNA test and they weren't Miwok. And the tribe their father belonged to, even though it had Miwok in its name and was living on Miwok land, multiple lawsuits alleged the tribe wasn't Miwok either. It was Hawaiian. From Honolulu Civil Beat, this is Offshore, stories from Hawaii. I'm Ku'u Ka'uanoe. This is episode two of our fourth season, Far From Home. This season, we're trying to find out why Hawaiians are leaving the islands today and how they hold on to their identity abroad. But before we explore what's happening right now, we're looking back at stories of Hawaiians who have left in the past. Reporters and lawyers in California treated the DNA test in the custody battle as a shocking twist, but it's actually a well-documented, if little known, part of American history. And they were known as the lost tribe of Kanakas. They are not our Indians. They're not local. This is the story of a group of Hawaiians who ended up in California more than 160 years ago, back when Hawaii was an independent nation, and how their descendants are still connected to the islands in unexpected ways. So we just um, passed through Folsom. We're driving through what part of California would this be, Jeff? Uh, Northern California, sort of the north end of the Central Valley. That's offshore producer Jessica Terrell. She flew to Northern California in July to interview a man named Rick Adams, a tribal elder and historian with the Shingle Springs Band of Miwok Indians. Rick is a direct descendant of Hawaiians who came to California in the 1800s and married into local indigenous tribes. And he sounded pretty excited to talk about his family and the rich legacy of Hawaiians in California. But about an hour before Jess was supposed to meet with Rick, she got an unexpected phone call. Okay, so we're driving through the north end of the Central Valley. We're about an hour from Placerville where I was supposed to meet with several members of the Shingle Springs band and the PR person, the spokesperson for the tribe just called and told me they were canceling all interviews, including one that I had set up quite a while before coming out here because they're concerned about 
two lawsuits that have happened in the past. Um, we're all the way up here, and I guess we're not going to get to talk to anybody. The Shingle Springs Band has a big presence in El Dorado County. In 2008, they opened up a casino that drew a lot of attention. A $500 million project, 278,000 square feet of building at the new Red Hawk Casino. 88,000 of that is dedicated to gaming. The casino says this will not only be an economic boom to the community, but will help out the tribe as well. It's a small casino, but it's big enough to provide the tribe with a sizable income. They've bought more land in the area, built a health center, and have enough left over to give tribal members around $3,000 a month. Not everyone thinks the tribe should have the casino. The county filed several lawsuits to block construction, including one that claimed the tribe was basically imposters. That the feds never should have recognized the tribe, in part because their ancestors were Hawaiian. It's the same argument that a man named Cesar Caballero has been making for more than a decade. He claims the tribe doesn't have the rights to the tribal name or the land. He says his family are the real Miwoks. I don't know who you're dealing with, but you're not dealing with Miwok Indians. Caballero was convicted of stealing the tribe's mail several years ago, and there's a complicated back and forth that we're not going to get into here. But the arguments about the tribe's Hawaiian ancestry has added fuel to this notion that something is wrong here. Now another group has come forward claiming it holds the rights to the land. Even though most of these suits have been dismissed, the Shingle Springs tribe is so sensitive to the suits that asking questions about them basically got offshore producer Jessica Terrell banned from even stepping foot on tribal land. After the spokeswoman from the tribe canceled Jess's interviews, she popped into a little museum on Main Street, run by the local historical society. We're at Fountain and Tallman Museum on Main Street, Placerville. That's Marilyn Ferguson. She's 88 years old and is described by the local paper as the go-to person when anyone has a question about Placerville history. Marilyn says there have been Miwok living in the area for centuries. The Miwok lived in small tribes spread across Northern California. They were mostly hunter-gatherers, but they also grew tobacco, raised domesticated dogs, and played a game similar to modern soccer. Things did not go well for the Miwok in the 18th and 19th centuries. First came Spanish conquistadors, then Americans chasing gold. And, and what happened to the indigenous people who were here? What happened to your Indians during all of that? Well, they pretty much got stopped all over. Marilyn says that there are still Miwok families in the area today, descendants of Miwok families living here before the gold rush. But the Shingle Springs Band of Miwok Indians, the tribe that owns the casino? They are not our Indians. They're not local. Are they fairly good neighbors? Are they involved in stuff in the community at all? Um, well, they've got lots of money. So I'm sure that they're sponsoring uh, good deeds. I don't really know what they are because they don't really look at themselves as part of the historical community. So where did the Shingle Springs Band come from? 
And why is this story so sensitive that we were banned from even stepping foot on tribal land? We did some digging through documents and talked to some historians. And this is what we found. There were 10 Hawaiians who made the voyage, a small group of workers who agreed to follow an eccentric Swiss businessman thousands of miles across the Pacific in exchange for $10 a month. John Sutter wanted to create an agricultural kingdom in the Mexican colony of Alta, California, a kingdom where, of course, he would be the king. But he needed help. In the 50 years since Hawaiians like Ka'iana and Kawahine had visited British Columbia, Hawaiians had become prized workers on the west coast of what is now the United States. In the first instance, Hawaiians were associated with Europeans in their conquest of the Northwest. That's Gary Okahiro. He's a historian from Hawaii who currently teaches at Yale. Hawaiians were building forts, helping Europeans move along the Columbia River and finding goods to trade. By the mid-1800s, there were hundreds of Hawaiians in what is now Canada and California. In 1847, Hawaiians made up 10% of San Francisco's tiny but growing population. Hawaiians, first of all, fought against American Indians, but Hawaiians also formed alliances with American Indians. And I think largely because they were both racialized in the same way, that is, as non-white people. It was a tough spot to be in. On the one hand, Hawaiians were helping with the conquest of the West. And on the other hand, they were also second-class citizens who had a lot in common with the Native Americans they encountered. In 1839, when Sutter left for Alta, California, there were roughly a thousand Europeans in the Mexican colony and hundreds of thousands of Indians. The presence of Hawaiians helped white settlers dominate a world where they were vastly outnumbered. I want to point out here, though, that Sutter has long been regarded as something of a heroic pioneer in California. But his legacy has been strongly challenged in recent decades. Historical documents state that Sutter held hundreds of Indians as slaves, raped, and abused them. Hawaiians helped Sutter build the fort near present-day Sacramento. Then came the gold rush. They initially worked for Sutter. Then Sutter moved up to Sutter's Mill, which is up in the mountains, and then they found gold. It's very likely that the Kanaka were the first to see the gold sparkling in the bottom of the stream at Coloma, California. That's David Chang. You met him in episode one. He's a native Hawaiian historian at the University of Minnesota. Gold was a disaster because it created the gold rush, which created this onslaught of colonialism. And it broke the whole world both Native Hawaiians and Native Americans were pushed out of the gold field. It was a very dangerous time to be indigenous, especially for Native American men. This was a very rough time in a very rough world. The violence they were facing in terms of enslavement, massacre, endorsed and often carried out by governmental forces, bounties on their scalps. As they settled in California, a number of Hawaiian men married local indigenous women which it turns out was a common occurrence up and down the West Coast. It's true in the gold fields. It's true in the fur trade. Why is that true? Why did that happen so much? White supremacy was creating common spaces, if you will, as all brown-skinned people, Asian people, American Indian people, Mexican people, Native Hawaiian people were pushed out. For indigenous women, it may have also seemed safer to be with Hawaiian men. 
They may have had more resources or means to protect themselves, allowing the two groups to settle and start families. In the aftermath of the gold rush, many Hawaiians stayed in California. A number of them moved then further down to a place called Vernon, which we now call Verona, Verona. In 1862, a newspaper reporter who had spent time living in Hawaii was surprised to stumble upon a small fishing village near Verona. He counted 24 Hawaiians, mostly men, and a number of Indian women who, though from California and not Hawaii, were fluent in Hawaiian. Their children seemed happy and content. These children are growing up in a mixed community. They're probably trilingual. They're going to know the foodways of their mothers, They're going to know the adapted foodways of their fathers. They're going to know this culture. This was an impoverished community. But Chang says it was also a worldly community. When we talk about worldliness or cosmopolitanism, we think about people who travel to France and Rome and and Shanghai on planes. But I want us to imagine these people as inhabiting a cosmopolitan world of being fluent in multiple cultures and able to deal with that and to respect that. So what led the descendants of this fishing village to open up a casino a century later? The answer goes back to broken federal promises and something of a bureaucratic mess. As U.S. territories expanded out during the gold rush, the U.S. government struck treaties with several Native American tribes. If these tribes would give up their lands now, the government would set aside reservation lands for them later. The U.S. government, however, kept terrible records. When they finally looked into fulfilling those treaties, they weren't exactly sure who they made treaties with, who to give lands to, and even which groups were actually tribes. So there may have been some guesswork. In 1916, an agent with the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs traveled to California looking for landless and destitute Indians. The agent recorded a number of Miwok families living in the Placerville area and called those people the El Dorado Band. Then, around 50 miles away, he came across another group of Indians living in modest huts on a riverbank. The group was mostly made up of extended family members, a few Hawaiian men and their wives, local Miwok and Maidu, and one white woman. They're fishing there, they're fishing with nets, probably with a mix of Hawaiian and Miwok and Maidu and Nissanin fishing techniques. It's important for us to imagine this is a mixed community. It is a Kanaka community, but it's also an indigenous Northern California community as well. The spit of land they lived on was small. It nearly disappeared when the river swelled from rain. They lived on fish and marsh birds, bought meager food supplies from town by delivering fish to markets and individual houses nearby. The agent dubbed this group of Indians the Sacramento-Verona Band of Homeless Indians and suggested buying land for them. They seemed open to banding together, he wrote, and would be excellent candidates for the federal government's plan to colonize and civilize Indians in California. Land in Sacramento was deemed too expensive, so the government purchased 160 acres in El Dorado County, right next to an 80-acre parcel meant for the El Dorado Miwok Indians. Moving the multiple groups near each other would make the government's plan to educate and colonize the Indians easier. But the Sacramento-Verona tribe, Hawaiian and Indian alike, never moved to the 160-acre parcel. 
For decades, the land sat fallow, unused. So where did the Sacramento-Verona tribe go? Rick Adams, a tribal historian with the Shingle Springs Band, told Jess on the phone that he grew up on another Indian reservation in California, his family guests of another tribe. Then in 1970, the Bureau of Indian Affairs reached out to Adams and other descendants of the group dubbed the Sacramento-Verona tribe. It offered them the choice of selling the land and pocketing the cash. The descendants of those homeless Native Americans and Hawaiians, they voted to keep the land. And then something rather remarkable happened. They came together, and though they hadn't really been a tribe a century before, they became a tribe today. They renamed themselves the Shingle Springs Band of Miwok Indians. They built homes on the land, a church, a community center, negotiated with the state to get highway access to the land, and fought for years against neighbors and county government to build a casino. They resurrected the use of Miwok and Maidu traditions. They started a tribal council, built a police force. And through it all, from the ancestors who eked out a meager living on the riverbank, to their descendants who moved into towns and lived with friends on other reservations, the band has maintained their Hawaiian culture and heritage. That's my producer, Jess. She went out to El Dorado County in July and met up with a hula teacher who has worked with the Shingle Springs Band for more than 15 years. Aloha, my name is Rosalie Lokalia Stearns, and we are in Cameron Park, California. I am 86. I'm still teaching. I'm still going strong. In the early 2000s, several girls from the Shingle Springs tribe started taking hula classes with Rosalie. Then they got permission from the tribal uh, uppers to bring me into the Miwok reservation and teach there. And so uh, I, I taught there for several years. Rosalie has taught classes to the tribe on and off for the last two decades. She's taught classes to young kids and tribal elders. And she says the tribe's connection to its Hawaiian roots were clear. Well, it was all family, all ohana. That's what it was. It was all ohana. And if you live ohana, you live Hawaiian. In 1,000 feet, your destination will be on the right. So we just pulled into Red Hawk Casino. Let's go to where it says parking. According to newspaper articles, the tribe celebrated the opening of its casino with a mixture of Native American dances and Hawaiian songs. Jess didn't find anything Hawaiian when she visited the casino last summer. One lawyer told the local newspaper there was a tiki bar on site, but it wasn't there when Jess stopped by. The tribe's connections to Hawaii are clear in other ways. There are social media posts celebrating their Hawaiian and Miwok and Nisanen connections, stories in local newspapers about supporting Hawaiian sovereignty from abroad, posts about building Hawaiian-style canoes out of trees native to California, and pictures of home decorations bearing indigenous American and Hawaiian words. This connection to Hawaii, which the tribe has held on to for two centuries, appears to have come at a cost. Whenever there is a land dispute, a custody dispute, the bloodlines of the tribe are raised again and again. 
The Miwok families that the Bureau of Indian Affairs dubbed the El Dorado tribe in 1916 lost their land decades ago. Now, some of their descendants say it's unfair for the Shingle Springs Band to have taken Miwok as part of its name. Unjust, and perhaps a misinterpretation of the law, for the tribe to have land in the area. However complicated their origins, the tribe's sovereignty has been upheld repeatedly in court. This should not be de facto recognition, this should be de jure recognition. We have the list going back to 1979. That's a very old list. Every year since then, right? Now it's changed, changed, the name changed a little bit at the outset, but since I can't remember what point in the 1980s going forward, this particular band of Indians has been recognized by the federal government as the Shingle Springs Miwok, whatever that full name is. Rick Adams, the tribal elder Jess was supposed to meet in July, traces his origins back to those original 10 Hawaiians who went to California with John Sutter in 1839. Rick told a newspaper in 2009 that his Native American ancestors survived the gold rush because of the protection they received by marrying Native Hawaiians, a group that, though marginalized, had far more rights than Native Americans did at the time. Now, it's the bloodlines of his Native American ancestors that have given him something Hawaiians have been unable to achieve. Sovereignty. You've been listening to Offshore, Stories from Hawaii. I'm Ku'u Ka'uanoi. Two decades after Hawaiians helped build a fort for John Sutter in California, another group of Hawaiians would find themselves stranded in Massachusetts and take up arms in America's bloodiest war. That's next time on Offshore. Offshore is produced by Honolulu Civil Beat, a nonprofit news organization dedicated to building an informed community with news you can trust. You can find other seasons of Offshore at offshorepodcast.org. Offshore's executive producer is Patty Epler. Our producers are Jessica Terrell and April Estrelon. Our associate producer is Claire Caulfield. Our engineer this season is Jackie Sojiko. This is season four of Offshore, and we hope you're enjoying it. But let's pull back the curtain just a bit. Our small podcast team spent several months researching, reporting, traveling, fact-checking, and producing this ambitious new season. We're one of only a few local nonprofit newsrooms investing time and resources in creating a serialized podcast. It wasn't easy, and it wasn't cheap. Reporting hours, producing hours, audio equipment, travel expenses, it all adds up. We're a nonprofit newsroom in Hawaii with a public service mission, and we need your help. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, if you value our hard work, please consider supporting our reporters by making a tax-deductible gift. Can we count on you? Visit offshorepodcast.org and hit the support button at the top of the page. That's offshorepodcast.org. Thank you so much for supporting our work. <laughs>